What's up, everyone? I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, where music artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, and other interesting human beings dive deep into the story beyond the surface. This episode is brought to you by The Ox. The Ox is a short-form podcast produced by Auxoro, bringing you a daily dose of uncensored wisdom to jumpstart your life Monday through Friday. Five-minute episodes, no bullshit, no topic off-limits. We explore things like fashion, relationships, porn, meditation, and more. You can subscribe to this podcast by searching The Aux, A-U-X, wherever you listen to podcasts or by visiting the link in the description. What defines success in business and relationships? Is it making a shit ton of money, investing in the right company, providing value, Maybe for you, success is writing a thousand words a day for a week straight or for one hour having the most meaningful interaction you can with somebody who's right in front of you. Sahil Lavingia, the guest on this week's episode, has defined success differently at different stages in his life. As a teenager into his early 20s, Sahil lived in Silicon Valley, the home of cutting-edge startup culture. He was the second employee at Pinterest and then left to start his own company called Gumroad, an online platform that enables creators to sell products directly to consumers. In 2011, at 18 years old, Sahil raised $8 million for Gumroad and declared his mission to build his first billion-dollar company. Things did not go as planned. In 2015, Sahil laid off 75% of the company and was no longer venture funded. But today, Gumroad is as strong as ever. So what happened? To quote Sahil's blog post, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company on Medium, which I highly suggest you check out this article. The link will be in the podcast description. Sahil writes, for years, my only metric of success was building a billion dollar company. Now I realize that was a terrible goal. It's completely arbitrary and doesn't accurately reflect impact. I'm not making an excuse or pretending that I didn't fail. I'm not pretending that failure feels good. Everyone knows that failure rate in startups, especially venture-funded ones, is super high, but it still sucks when you don't reach your goals. I failed, but I also succeeded at many other things. We're simply focused on building the best product we can for our customers. And on top of all that, I'm creating value beyond our product. In this podcast, Sahil shares what triggered this change in mentality of how he views success, moving from Silicon Valley to Provo, Utah, the most conservative and religious city in America, over 100,000 people, painting with retired moms, the DNC debate format, and more. So without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Sahil Avingia. I think a, a good place to start and as some some background, I've heard you speak on a number of different podcasts. And one thing that was mentioned in a few of them is is painting. And I thought that would be 
a good place to start off the podcast. I heard you mention one that you do a lot of painting with retired moms and painting has been something that you've gotten into since you've, I don't know if it's since you moved to Provo, Utah, or it's been part of your life before then, but how, how did that start? How did painting come into your life? Yeah, it, it started after I moved to Provo, Utah. So maybe um, two and a half years ago. Um, how did it start? I mean, it was one of those things where I had the time and I wanted to fill it with something productive and something creative. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do when I retired. And writing and painting was kind of what, you know, what, I don't know how I ended up on those two things specifically. I think they were sort of both forms of communication. And so when I had the opportunity to kind of Basically, the way I think about it is I, I had an opportunity to move basically a year of my retirement up front. Um, and so I was like, cool, I can like get really into a couple different hobbies. And then whenever I re- get to return to my like normal work life, when I get, you know, I'll, I will have at least some momentum to keep these things going. And so by the time I retire, mm-hmm. I'll be really good at these things instead of like retiring and then being like, cool, now I can buy some paints and figure this out, which, you know, like any skill, uh, the earlier I think you get started, um, the more time you get to spend on it. You know, the more the more time you get your life yeah. while with that new perspective that you gain from it, I think just the better off you, you're going to be. So, so you had some time to sort of test out the the retirement life before you actually fully jumped into it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I moved from San Francisco to Provo. And I was taking this science fiction fantasy writing class and I had plenty of free time. I was sort of explicitly not working on Gumroad more than I had to. Uh, I just needed a break and I wanted to, you know, I had given it sort of like four or five years of my life at that point. I wanted to, actually longer, I think, 2017, so six years of my life and, you know, working pretty, pretty, you know, startup hours. And so I was like, I need a break. I'm going to see what happens if I don't work on this thing because it seems to be growing or not growing like regardless. And so I was like, okay, what do I do with my time? Okay. I can, you know, I can do these other things that, that I've wanted to do for a long time. That meant, you know, many, I think the most common dream job in, in the UK is uh, becoming a novelist, right? It's not like a, a crazy, really? yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty, you know, if, 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 if you had unlimited time and money or if anyone did like art, making art is often, Pretty, pretty close to the top of the list, if not number one. It's cool that you were thinking about what you would want to do with your free time and expressing that through through painting and writing. I, I don't think enough people really figure out what they really like doing with their free time, either because they don't really explore it when they have the chance to, or maybe, you know, just because of certain scheduling or how their life is working out, they might not have the opportunity to explore it. But I think it's like like something that my parents have encouraged me to do. I'm 25, um, living in Brooklyn, New York for some context. And my parents have encouraged me to travel while I was young because that that's something that they regretted not doing They're, when they uh, earlier on in their lives. And they basically were trying to explain to me that something like traveling when you're younger is like a muscle. So if you 
get used to going to different places and getting out of your comfort zone and exploring what you want to do, you don't just flip a switch and retire and all of a sudden start doing those things. Like if you don't learn to express yourself your whole life and don't take advantage of your creative uh, tendencies and exploring the things that you truly have a passion for, you don't just all of a sudden start doing that when you have free time. So I think it's cool that you've already found creative expressions to to dig yourself into, even though you you aren't necessarily in retirement. It's kind of like a foresight into what that could be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And when, you know, I think things things come and go, and so when I have like a drive to do something, like paint forty hours a week for two years. I'm going to jump on that opportunity because, you know, there's there, you know, two years later, I might not want to do that anymore. I might just watching, you know, binging Netflix shows or whatever. I think every, every human has these sort of these ups and downs. And so I think a lot of it is, yeah. Like when I, when I am in a, in a mode where I'm like, I just want to read, you know, 130 books a year. I can, I, you know, I, I try to sort of take advantage of, of that. What do you like to paint? Whatever is in front of me. The cool thing with painting is that you're constantly surrounded by like an infinite amount of subject matter. So writing is different. Writing is, is you know, you kind of have to sit down and, and think about, okay, what do I want to write about? But painting is literally like I could paint whatever is in front of me right now. And it would be a great painting. So that, yeah, really, you know, I started out doing landscapes. So I just paint trees and clouds and grass and mountains typically those are the those are sort of the things that appear in in where i was living at the time in provo utah um snow rocks i love painting rocks rocks are one of my favorite things to paint um but really you know it's it's kind of like what's that saying like the the best camera is the one you have on you right it's kind of the same thing i think too many people get caught up in, in what they should be painting like what they want to spend 40 hours, you know, multi-figure, you know, narrative piece about, you know, these two people on the New York subway or something like that. But that just, in my opinion, like, I don't care. Like, I, I, don't, I don't care actually about my paintings at all. Um, I throw almost all of them away. Uh, I care about becoming a good painter and sort of understanding how I see the world. and. I could paint, you know, what's in front of me right now, like a TV or a plant or a pillow and learn plenty about the way that I see the world. Yeah, I, I barely have any experience painting aside from the, the scheduled art projects in, in middle school and high school. But just thinking about painting right now, it seems so intimidating because you're you, you, there's no set path that you have to follow. There's no set colors or mediums. You could use different sorts of paints and textures and, and you're basically looking at something and then translating it through your hand movements and, and then other colors and textures onto a piece of paper. And hopefully it looks something like the expression that you're trying to go for and, and painting and art in general, at least visual art is cool because it's one of those things where a, a good painting doesn't necessarily mean that it's close to 
reality. Like uh, there's a lot of different lanes where in order for something to be considered good, you're trying to replicate something else and get it to be as close as possible. So like when you're paint, when you're painting, you can have something that's in a unbelievable form of expression obviously is not a, a direct depiction of reality, but the way through which you see it, the lens through which you see it makes all the difference. And, and I'm coming from like, I, I grew up as a pitcher in baseball my whole life. So I was always obsessed with mechanics and trying to replicate maybe certain pitchers I saw in Major League Baseball or, or trying to constantly reach a reality, which I wanted my throwing motion and body mechanics to be. And painting is something that kind of like completely throws that away. And feel free to correct me if you, you know, that's not been your experience, but just as an outside observer of that field, it, it seems like it's, there's so much room to make beautiful art. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's correct. There's definitely, you know, forms of painting in which there is more of a sort of a linear growth trajectory. You know, for example, if the goal is to, you know, if you have like sort of classical uh, ateliers, so you'd have a model nude stand in front of you for 60 hours. And the goal is to sort of as accurately as possible to depict the thing that's in front of you. And there's basically only four to five tools you can use. There's value, which is like lightness to darkness. There's edge, which is like the difference, you know, like the, the way that two different values blend into each other, a hard mm-hmm. edge or a soft edge, for example. Um, you have texture, um, you know, you have actual proportion, right? Like sort of just size wise, you might have some other things, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's, that's close to everything. And, and then when you do that, then it is, it is easier to be like, well, the hand's too big, you know, that's if, if the mm-hmm. goal is purely to represent what's in front of you, then like the head to the hand has a specific proportion and your proportion is off, it's too small or too large. But beyond that, yeah, if you're making a piece, it's really about the goal. You know, so it's like, it's really important in, in life, I think. To, before you give someone feedback, it's really important to understand their goal. Because I think it's easy to assume like, oh, this is what you want. This happens to me actually quite a bit nowadays. Because people have this sort of assumption, I think, about like where I want to go based on my past especially if they're not as familiar maybe about like the last two to three years of my life, um, which is sort of fundamentally different. And so they're like, oh, you started this company, you raised a bunch of venture capital. It didn't work out exactly the way you thought, but I still think you can build a billion dollar company. Let me tell you how I think you can go do that. And they'll spend five minutes being like, you know, you could build this, you could do this. There's some, you know, and I'm like, and I'll just like kind of nod my head and they're like, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, sounds cool. (laughs) And they're like, okay, cool. Like, I, you know, do you want? They knew. I said it's sort of like almost like sort of a job interview in a sense that I didn't really expect something. Mm-hmm. I only sort of realized this in hindsight. And I was like, yeah, and sounds great. And they're like, okay, like, you know, they kind of want more from me. Either I guess like an opportunity to be like to help out or or some feedback on their ideas. And they're like, have you thought about all this stuff before? And I'm like, yeah, some of it. <laughs> and I think it's really just like after some point, they're like, oh, like you don't actually want to build a billion dollar company anymore, do you? You don't care about this stuff. And I'm like, exactly. I don't. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I, I'm, I care a lot about how people think I care. I think it's really interesting because, it, you know, like I have this sort of 
outward image. And it, it's cool to kind of be like, oh, that's how you see me and how you see Gumroad and, and, and things like that. But yeah, my goals are probably not, you know, aligned, aligned with that anymore. And so same thing goes with painting, you know, like if someone wants to draw a head that's like six times too big for the body, awesome. As long as they make the choice to do that. To me, it, a lot of it comes down to choice and optionality. Um, are you, you know, sort of changing what's in front of you because you don't know how to not to, like you don't know how to, you can't see the correct proportion or are you seeing the correct proportion and then deciding, making a decision not to follow it? And that's very different, right? And so if you look at Picasso's work, he's a master painter who purposefully violates a lot of these rules of reality. Whereas a second grader is probably not doing that. I think it's important. Like that's what I always tell people. Like it's about choice. It's about I I love abstract art, but typically I th- in my opinion should come from a place of of like you know what you're doing, you know how to paint things from life, you choose not to do that. If that's all you can do, if that's all you can do is paint abstract art, to me, it's it, it's hard to to really sort of believe that you're a good painter because that's all you can do. To me, being a good painter is, is, is like being a good problem solver. You have a bunch of tools in your toolbox. You can, you can see a problem and you can decide these are the 15 ways I could solve this problem, you know, given certain constraints. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can only pick one, it's the one way you know how to solve a problem. It's like those people at the, at the pier that, you know, draw letters using animals, right. With those cool things like, or the people that do caricatures at the park, right? Like mm-hmm. they're very one dimensional. They're very good at that. It's incredibly impressive and super fast. But if you say, Hey, could you add shadows to that thing that, you, you know, that drawing of my face, they wouldn't typically not be able to do that. Yeah. And I think you mentioned some of those meetings where it's a job interview without you realizing it. And people are wondering maybe why you wouldn't want to take the advice to build a billion dollar company or go back onto path that you had previously had much, had much higher value for in your life. I, it sounds like some of that might be because in a way you're the way you are living right now is sort of violating the rules of the tech world, like Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And I don't know. It's, it just seems like they're, there may be just a disconnect between how motivation and information transfers between those people that that are giving you advice without realizing your motivations and people that understand completely what you're doing. And, and maybe it's a self-awareness thing. Like maybe they don't even realize what, what their motivations are. They're just kind of in a world where everyone else is doing what they're trying to do. Totally. I think that's true. I think me from the age of 17 to 23 probably was exactly like that, where I was sort of mimetic. I was just copying the people around me. Uh, you have to, right? I mean, as a, you know, as you get older, you oh, have yeah. access to different data, you have access to maybe different cultural viewpoints, et cetera. But yeah, if you kind of, I grew up sort of professionally in startup land. And there's a pretty sort of single, singular 
measure of success, which is the valuation of your company. If you're a startup founder, typically, if you build a $7 billion company, that's seven times as valuable as a $1 billion company. You know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of the leaderboard in on the side of the wall, right? Instead of the score, you know, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't blame anybody at all, but yeah, it's just, it's just interesting sort of as an anthropological, whatever that word is. Sounds right. Kind of see, oh, this is like, you know, this is what you're doing. And it's a combination, I think, of not even understanding what they're doing. But then also, I think, just basic projection. I think everybody does this. Um, you kind of project your viewpoint on the world and on everybody else. So you assume that if, okay, I'm really trying to make it in startup land. Therefore, everybody else in startup land must be trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do. And so I'm looking for people that I can work with so that we can both move forward. We can both kind of, you know, help each other out and sort of constantly seeking alignment, I think, in that way. And it's tough when you are, when you leave that, when you say, actually, I'm still part of this industry, I'm still part of this sort of like microcosm of, of a zeitgeist, but I am not following in lockstep as much anymore. And it sort of reveals a lot of the, some of the social pressure and some of the, the way things are done as just the way things are done, not like a, a thing based on first principle. You just don't see it because you know, you're just you're swimming in the same direction as everybody else. And when you stop, and you kind of, you know, you get out of the water and you look at everybody else. You're like, oh, I didn't realize that like, everyone's actually going this direction. And I don't, I can kind of see past that. And I'm like, I don't want to go there anymore. At least right, not right now. Um, it's just, yeah, sort of, sort of perspective. I've never been a part of the, the tech world on the West Coast, Silicon Valley. Never been in the day-to-day interactions and, and all of the pressures that come along with that, both you know, physically, emotionally, financially. And a, and a lot of amazing things have come out of that world, which, which would be an understatement that, you know, I'm talking and using devices and using software that is only possible because of the type of world that exists in that aspect of the culture. But at the same time, I don't envy the position of people judging themselves by valuation, which, which is what it sounds like, because there's no end to it, really. Like y- You can always get higher and higher. You can always raise more and more capital. And yeah, I, I don't know if there's a, a solution to that in terms of being at peace with where your company is at in the moment and not always trying to reach towards the next thing. I don't know if there's a way to hone in on the value that you're providing to customers through a product or service and then viewing the valuation as a byproduct of that or the the focus always has to be on the valuation and that's like the end-all be-all because in the end, the people that are investing in you want to see as high returns as possible. It seems like it's it kind of fosters a... It could foster some sort of complex where you're just like never satisfied because you're always chasing a number in, in some sense. Yeah, well, I think it's important to understand that like there's several t- groups of people within any industry. In startup land, there's the VCs, right, the investors, 
there's the founders, there's the employees. They're not sort of mutually exclusive or completely exhaustive, but there's sort of these like three, I would say, core groups of people that you need to build anything to build Facebook or to build Uber or to build nothing, uh, like a failure of a company, which is also fine. Um, and the people, I mean, there, you know, there are other people like lawyers, for example, that you need, but in general, the people that have been in there the longest, in this case, the VCs, they have the most institutional knowledge. They're the ones that just by nature of being in the room, the longest get to sort of dictate the sort of the social norms of the environment. Right. And so you just have to understand that the narrative that is communicated is one that's typically going to be communicated by the oldest people first, sort of seniority wise. So you have the VCs that are sort of telling people this is the way things are done. The founders only really have one option because these are, you know, if they want to raise money, they have to raise money from this group of people. You know, the employees, people like me, well, who do we learn from? We learn from the founders, right? So you can see the same thing happen in. And obviously the VCs typically, if they're investors, they care about return and the vast majority of returns come from very few outsized companies like Uber and Facebook. And so that's why that has become, I think, the, uh, the sort of the goal for the, for the industry collectively and individually in a sense. And you see the same thing in Hollywood. You see the same thing in every industry. In Hollywood, for example, like the people that dominate are typically like the executives at these companies that have worked in the industry for a long time. To you know, less so the directors, less so the you know maybe the actors, even them you know like typically, and then certainly the talent and everybody else. Same thing, right? Like you, you typically have a focus because of the executives, the investors, etc. That they have a narrative they want to communicate that they want the the industry to follow because that's the the one that benefits them the most. I would say. There's no real right answer because if you even if you swap out the valuation of the company for how much value you're creating for customers, maybe, you know, in my opinion, that would be a slightly better goal, but you're still faced with the same sort of existential problem, which is you're outsourcing your success, your happiness, your am I done? Am I, you know, good enough? All these things, you're still outsourcing those to uh, to a market that maybe you can't control fully. And so, you know, one of our creators, she has this great line that I stole from her, which is enough is a decision, not an amount, which is just kind of a simple. Enough is a decision, not an amount. Yeah. Enough is a decision, not an amount. I like that. Yeah. You know, you just have to decide like, I'm good with where I am. You can still compete. You can still try to get better. But if that's the thing that's stopping you from feeling good about where you are, which is where I was for a few years, post majority layoffs in 2015. It's not, you know, you have to kind of come to terms with the fact that like, you're not going to really find your happiness outside. And, and even if you do, it's, it's dangerous in a whole new way, because if Gumroad was killing it, then I would just continue to work 60, 80 hours a week. I would probably not date, you know, I was single for like, I don't know, several years in a row, just because, you know, it wasn't the focus, wasn't the priority, because if Gumroad became a billion dollar company, that would have been the best thing in the world. Nothing else mattered. And if Gummer didn't, nothing else mattered. You know, it was kind of this priority stack that I had. And once, once you break out of that, once you sort of make your identity and your sort of the, the inputs into your happiness, multidimensional, 
it sort of reduces the power that any one of these things has and any one of these groups of people have to sort of make you do what you want, you know, exert influence and power over you. And that's, that's really, I feel like the definition of freedom. And I think freedom and happiness are probably pretty close, close together. So I want to switch gears to the, the decision-making process before you moved from San Francisco to Provo, Utah. And I won't make you rehash the whole storyline because I know you've done it dozens of times. And for context, you wrote a fantastic Medium article, which I'll link in the podcast as well, which I think anyone who's listening to this will also be interested in reading your Medium blog. But I think that what's important for people to know is that you were in startup world. You set a goal for yourself that you wanted to build this billion-dollar company, which is Gumroad. It's not a billion-dollar company, but it's still going strong and did not end up having the path that you foresaw when you first created the vision. And so I just wanted to lay that out for people. And I was listening... or I, I believe this is actually from your article. You said that... I'm quoting... I wanted to work on something new and I needed new ideas. So I moved to the place most full of people not like me, Provo, Utah. A writing class taught by one of my favorite authors, Brandon, Brandon Sanderson, excuse me, at BYU served as the final impetus. And you, you mentioned writing before. What was it about that writing class with Brandon Sanderson that, that served as the, the final push towards Utah? Yeah, man. If I, re- I wish I could edit that article because I feel like final impetus is, is oxymoronic. I looked up impetus because I thought it meant something else, and I was like, "Oh, that's um, that makes sense." But I mean, it's a, it's it's out there, so I mean, yeah, who no, cares? It's, it's funny. I'm a better writer now, I guess, than I was three years ago or two years ago or yesterday <laughs> or yesterday. That's true. I think writing for me start you know writing starts with reading. And I'd just been reading a lot as a kid and I just really always loved science fiction and fantasy, these sort of like sort of the, the umbrella term of, of speculative fiction. And the reason I love it so much is that it just, it lowers the stakes because the problem I find with a lot of in-person communication and in online communication too, is you're dealing with real problems, real people, real suffering. And it makes it difficult to really tackle certain topics, especially high stake, high stakes topics, sort of objectively. Or even like for me, I, I might be able to sort of handle it objectively potentially, but it's not even worth it because I don't want to piss somebody off or I don't want to sort of be misrepresented mm. or misquoted or taken out of context or any of these things. But when I write about like robots <laughs> on Mars, people are typically not going to be like, dude, like it's uncool, man. Like that's you know, and so I think in general that's one of the one of the reasons that it became so attractive to me. And then yeah, I just wanted to see if I could write some of it myself, right? And it's they're sort of just like sort of a full on thought experiments where you set up a world, you change one thing, what if this, what if that, and then you kind of experiment with what happens, and it really tests your ability to understand. Almost everything. Like you have to understand humans, you have to understand the world, you have to understand economics, food, culture, you have to understand trade, you have to understand agriculture, 
you can't, you have to understand plumbing often. Um, if you want to tell a story, you know, in a world with plumbing, you kind of have to understand plumbing to some degree, which some people like to like to joke is like, basically, you need to know where does the poop go? A lot of that stuff is kind of just ignored in, in many, many, many formats, but it's important. And so, yeah, that's kind of what got me into science fiction and fantasy. And then I just started writing it. And Brandon Sanderson is one of my favorite authors. I love his work. And so when I, when I saw that he teaches a class in Provo, I was like, awesome. I'm moving to Provo. So it was kind of a quick, quick, not, not a quick decision in terms of from when you first thought of it to actually coming to fruition, but that, that class was a huge deciding factor in the, the decision-making process. So you were in Provo when you were taking that class, like you were fully moved there. Yeah, I was thinking about leaving uh, San Francisco for a few months, I believe. And then Trump's election sort of accelerated that in November of 2016. And I knew I was, I wanted to live in a more conservative place in San Francisco, definitely, just to learn more, as I mentioned. And then when I saw him tweet, I think, about this class that he teached, he taught uh, at BYU, I was like, this checks every box I could ever imagine, but there's no way I can get in this class of 15 people for basically one of the, you know, one of the top authors in the industry. You know, this guy sells millions of books a year. And, but I applied as, as one does. And I got in, I guess, two, two weeks later. Um, you know, I just sent in the first chapter of the, of the book that I'd already been working on. And yeah, I just, I got in and I was like, I guess I'm moving to Provo, Utah. I never really like analyzed the decision too much. It was just like, you know, I will think about it. Oh, I'm going to apply because why not? It's like the last day of applications. And if I get in, which I probably won't, then I can figure out if it's a good decision. And when I actually got in, I was like, well, I guess I applied. So therefore it must've been a thing I wanted to do. So therefore I moved. And I, you know, I was like, telling myself, like, I'm going to move to a conservative place. Like, I want to do this, right? Like, I want to learn more. I want to expand my horizon. And given this opportunity to do that in such a perfect way, for me to say no would have been, like, pretty hypocritical. It would have been like, oh, I was, you know, I like to tell everybody that I was really open-minded, but the opportunity to actually sort of show, show myself that I was, I, would, I was not going to do it. And I wasn't doing anything in San Francisco. So I was kind of like, why not? What was your mindset behind escaping, or not, I don't know if escaping is the right word, but moving from San Francisco, you said because of the election. A lot of people stayed there, of course, during the election. And it's a extremely liberal city, San Francisco, but if, for people that aren't aware. And Provo, like you were saying, is almost the exact opposite, I believe, in terms of voting patterns. What made you want to get away from San Francisco rather than just ride it out? Yeah. So San Francisco is 9% Trump supporters, according to the polls or whatever. And Provo Utah is 13% Hillary supporters. So almost diametrically opposite. For me, it was about learning. It was about growth. It was about, I was surprised by the results of the election, as I think many people were. And I think typically when I'm surprised by something, that's like an opportunity to learn because it means I lacked some information that would have led to the correct 
call, for example. And then I think the other thing was that the election became almost like the singular focus of all free time and conversation. Like it was such a big deal that everywhere I went, every time I hung out with somebody, if we weren't talking about something very sort of work specifically related, which, you know, in my case, I wasn't because I didn't have a team anymore. I didn't have an office. It was just talking about Trump. It was just kind of, I think I say in the, in the article, something like, it, you know, we basically just congratulate each other on how right we were and, and we're going to wait for the rest of the world to catch up, right? And just like, oh, wow, all these idiots, racists, homophobes voted for this bigot, unfortunately. But, you know, they're, they're going to die eventually. So, like, let's just wait it out. And then they'll realize that, like, Hillary or Bernie, whatever liberal uh, person was, like, actually the, the right way to go. And they're going to learn that, like, you know, pro-choice, pro-this, pro-that is the right, you know, and, and their viewpoint is wrong. And even if I was correct on all of these things, even if I was, if we were correct on all of them, I just wasn't learning anything. And why would I spend that much money living in San Francisco? if I wasn't building a startup and I wasn't learning anything, mm-hmm. you know, I was just kind of like stuck. It felt like I was, I was kind of treading water or something, just waiting to die or something like that. Like, what's the point? And so, yeah, when that, that a lot of that, would, you know, was sort of some of the decision, sort of some of the reasons that went into that. It's still weird though. I mean, still people tell me like, it doesn't matter what you say because you moved to Provo, Utah. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. Like on the face of it, it just is a singular thing. Like which liberal San Francisco engineer, founder of a startup, raised $10 million, moves to Provo, Utah to take a science fiction and fantasy writing class. Do people use that to discount you that don't agree with you? Like, look at this crazy dude that just left San Francisco and he's obviously not thinking straight. Do do you ever encounter things like that? No, really. Honestly, no. Because actually, like, conservative people who are mostly the people I still disagree with the most, at least on the face, like, they love it because they're like, wow, you, you know, they actually hate the fact that they're called flyover country, right? Like, they hate the idea that they're just, no one, no one wants to be there. No one goes there by choice. The number one question I always get in Provo is like, why are you here? Like, what brought you here? Yeah, that's so funny because the number one question I'm sure in San Francisco and in New York as well is, is what do you do? What do you do? Because people are always trying to like size you up and they're like, you might as well just ask how much do you make? And because they're basically just trying to get an idea of where you sit on the societal ladder. So it's, it's funny that in Provo, they're just like, why the fuck are you here? (laughs) Like what brought you here? Exactly. If it's not religion, you know, like what's the point? Why, 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 why are you here? And and also, I think people, I, I would say that the people that discount, that use my weird story, it, it, it's, it's almost always to discount themselves. And so when I say, hey, you can do this, you can do this, X, Y, Z, whatever it is, you know, I, could, I learned to write, I learned to paint, I learned to code, I learned to design, you can do it too. And quite frequently, people tell me, no, I can't, because you're a unique person this is all the data I've assembled that shows that you are a unique person. That's why you do these things. And to me, it's like you're switching cause and effect. Like you're saying that I did these things because I'm a unique person, but that's not what happened. I did these things and that's what makes me a unique person, right? In my opinion, that's, 
you know, the only opinion that I can hold. And it sometimes it frustrates me because I'm like, people are like, oh man, it would be so cool to like, you know, like right now I'm working on this animated project, this uh, animated short music video thing. And people are like, oh, that's so cool. Like, that's, it's awesome that you do that. I'm like, yeah, like, do you want to learn more? Like, I'd love to tell you exactly how I'm doing it and how I'm thinking about it and send you any materials I have and like all these notes I have for meeting people in LA. And, you know, I moved to Burbank from Provo around two months ago. And very often people are like, nah, I'm never going to be able to do that. You know, maybe if I'm rich and famous one day or something like that. And I'm like, you can do it. Like, it's not moving from one city to another has never been easier. I'm not saying everyone can do it. And certainly like I have a lot of freedom and, and, and privilege and whatever you want to call it that allows me to do stuff like this now. But I do believe quite strongly in the power of the internet and the power of just software to enable opportunity for people that may not have had it a hundred years ago. Yeah. And when someone says that they can't do something, you're labeling yourself as someone who, de- who lacks the ability to do whatever that may be, to write a book, start a podcast, paint, create a startup. And so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where you are what you label yourself as. So if you say, I'm, I'm a person that will never be able to run five miles, you're never going to be able to run five miles. And that's a, that's a super simple example. I think it's, it's interesting. You know, there's, a, there's a term in the writing community, which is, if you write, you're a writer which is, I think, meant to mostly sort of tell people, like, you don't have to be an amazing writer. You don't have to write every day. You just have to write. And if you write, you can call yourself a writer. You don't have to, like, gatekeep yourself out of, you know, out of a community because you feel like you're not qualified enough. But the flip side of that is, it's, I actually think of it as an incredibly sort of difficult thing to understand. It, because what it says is, it doesn't matter what you do. If you don't write, you're not a writer. Right. That's the flip side of that statement, which is to basically say, just do the thing. By definition, the act of doing it is what makes you a doer of that thing. And nothing else is going to reading books, watching YouTube videos, thinking about doing it. You can say you can run a 5K, but the only thing that shows that you can is running the 5K. So it goes both ways. But I think it's both motivational, but it's also sort of shows that you need discipline. You can't just say that you are that. That's also not enough. You need to, just like, you know, I moved from from Burbank, uh, from Provo to Burbank, which is sort of where a lot of the animation companies are based. And is it, on one hand, it's an incredibly easy thing to do, right? Like, you find a lease, right? You move in, you put all your stuff in your car and you move. You know, it's a 10-hour drive, which is what I did. In another way, it's incredibly difficult because you're moving your whole life. You're saying bye to all the friends that you know are two and a half years making. Uh, not really, because you have the internet now. But you know, you're 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 making a significant change. But I always look at it like it's actually incredibly easy to do. Whereas I think a lot of other people might look at it and be like, "Wow, that's incredibly impressive." I'm like, moving to Provo was the easiest thing I ever did. Like I put all my stuff in five suitcases and literally took a flight to Provo. It's like 45 minutes from Oakland, I think. I saved money doing it. You know, because I was spending money in on San Francisco rent. Yeah, I think San, San Francisco passed New York. I think within the past couple of years, in terms of rent prices and housing prices, and it's way more now. I mean, it's funny. Like I used to complain about. I mean, I've always complained about rent. Everyone does all the time, but it's way worse now. I was talking to somebody the other day who says that they have they had 
rooms, one bedroom in San Francisco for like 5,500. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and they're probably splitting that with two other roommates. Yeah. Or I, there are a, lot, a lot of my friends in the city will uh, get a, a one bedroom or I, I've heard of people living in studios that are kind of partitioning it yeah, off. Yeah, New York paying 4,000 a month total. Yeah, you add a, a, a bedroom and then you split it down the middle. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's crazy. I, you know, I think San Francisco is a great place. It's certainly worth living there for a while. I sort of consider it like going to college, you know, in that way. You go, you do your thing, and then you, you leave. But I, it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. San Francisco, why? What you were saying before about if you write, you're a writer. It reminds me of a clip from the Joe Rogan podcast I saw recently. I, I think it was Anthony Jeselnik was the guest. And he was talking about how he runs into people that have done comedy in the past. Maybe they've been a big name in comedy and they'll still refer to themselves as a stand-up comic. And then he asks them what their routine is or how often do they go on stage. And they're like, oh, I haven't been on stage in six months. And Anthony Jeselnik just goes, well, th- th- then you're not a comic. It doesn't matter if you go up on stage and bomb every single night. If you go up there for five minutes, five times a week, you're a stand-up comic. If you're not on stage, you're not a stand-up comic. That's the definition of doing comedy. You are like you are who you are in the moment, right? Like the past is is imaginary. Like there's no way to prove anything in the past actually happened. Yeah, it's like if you're not if you're not doing the thing, you that it doesn't matter. Like it's just irrelevant in my in my opinion. So it's like, yeah, if you're if you're, yeah, if you say you're a stand-up comic, writing, I see this all the time. Like, oh, painting, let's use painting as a great example. Like, I became a pretty good painter, I think, in a, in a year or so, two years, let's say. And people were like, there's just no way that this is possible. Like, you're either talented or you're lying. People, people would, not direct, they wouldn't be like, you're lying, but they're like, there's no way, which is basically accusing me of lying, which I always think is kind of this like weird social thing that people do. But no, you must have drawn as a kid or like literally I never paint. I can't remember. I'm sure I painted at some point with watercolors or something in school, but I genuinely, I never took an art class. I bought paints for the first time in 2017. And, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know what color paints to buy, which in hindsight is kind of stupid because everyone tells you the primaries (laughs) is what, you know, so that's true. You go buy the first colors you should buy is red, blue, and yellow. Uh, Surprise, and, and and typically a white, but you know at least those two, those three, and it's like no, I just paint a lot. I paint, I paint more than most professionals paint because I don't have to be in meetings. I don't have to deal with anything else. I can just paint, and you know I painted twenty thirty hours from life and drew figure you know from live models basically every day for three to six hours. Turns out two years of that you get pretty darn good, pretty darn fast. Yes. And it's the consistency too. It's all about, it's all about, I mean, it's like why Andy was probably kind of pissed at this, this dude, because it's like, no, the way you get better, it's like going to the gym every six months. Like, what do you, that's doesn't get you anywhere. You know? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't do shit. It might. Yeah. Like it's probably just, it probably reduces the rate of cancer or something, but you know, like genuinely, yeah. If you're looking to get stronger, you got to go. I don't know, at least once a week, probably, right? Like minimum. So like, uh, yeah, I would say once or twice a week you can do, you can get some pretty good 
results doing full body workouts twice a week, I would say, going to the gym. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And eventually your, your muscles atrophy. And, and totally, someone who used to paint every day for 10 years and then took a 10-year break, they're going to come back and be way better than a beginner. Like, it, it, it doesn't atrophy all the way down. Just like someone who takes a break from going to the gym and comes back is going to get... And then obviously there's all the, sort of the, the lessons that are imprinted, right? Like your central nervous system, your form, uh, just the way you know, you know your way around the gym, just like you might know your way around painting a little bit better. But you do, have, you do take a hit. And if you take those hits too often, like it's hard to get really good. And especially in an industry that's competitive, like I assume stand-up comedy is, like painting is, like writing is, all these things because of the internet, like you're competing with everybody else on the planet, basically, or at least you know, the 2.5 or 3.5 or whatever billion that, that have access to the internet, you know, like you got to do it. You got to do it a lot. And so I think, you know, that's why... I moved to Provo, Utah and took this writing class. And then I, you know, I write every week. We have a writing group. We meet every week. I paint every week. I work on this animated project every day, basically. I work on Gumroad to some degree now every day. You do that enough, you get really, really, really good. It also increases the serendipity factor because so much of like the meetings I've been able to have, it's because I've, I've, I was working on something. You know, It wasn't like, oh, I have this idea. It's like, oh, you're interested in it. And if you know that person, like, what do you think of this thing that I'm working on right now? And when you don't, when you get rid of that stuff, when you only paint during workshops or you only do stand-up comedy like six months for a fundraiser, every six months for a fundraiser is my bet. All those opportunities, all that serendipity goes away. And so that, I think that's, a, that's another large component I think of doing it all the time or frequently is that you allow for the, the, the sort of those weird edge cases that in hindsight are going to make your entire career and are going to make your entire life. Yeah, and working out is a great example. Because whether you're in the gym once a week, twice a week, or you go five, six times a week, everyone has different goals and sees their bodies in, in different ways that they want to make changes towards. And the only way to do that is to apply pressure over time, like a literal, literal pressure and resistance over time and a combination of also being outside of the gym. Because if you are always in the gym 24-7, then you're never giving your body a chance to grow. So I think yeah. the gym is a, in that way is a great comparison to creative pursuits like painting or writing a story or creating an animation. Because I'm sure if you were constantly doing that, you know, 12, 16 hours a day, thinking about it on your mind, like chug, 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 like that's all you're doing. You're never getting creatively recharged. Yeah. You're never allowing other things to enter the realm of possibility because you're always in the, the creative gym. I also think the frequency creates boredom. And boredom is, is a really good thing. Because if you go to the gym once every three weeks, you're like, okay, I haven't been here in a while. So I'm going to bench, I'm going to squat, I'm going to deadlift, I'm going to overhead press, I'm going to do bicep curls, and I'm going to leave. But if you go every day, you're like, shit, I just did all those things yesterday. What am I going to do today? Right. Oh, I can go for a lot. I can, and, mm-hmm. and, and that a lot of the experimentation, I think, is a function of being bored. And, you know, if you're performing stamp comedy once every three months, like you can basically do the same set for the rest of your life if that's somehow sustainable for you. But if you're performing every day, twice a day, even within the set, you're going to experiment. You're going to try stuff. You're going to be like, oh, that thing didn't land as well as I thought it was going to land on my set that I just did two hours ago. So, like, let me try this new way. 
or let me change up this, the timing on this or whatever. And, and your body's, you know, you don't even have to actively think about doing this stuff. You're, you're just doing it inherently. You know, like I paint, if I'm figure drawing every day, literally every day, I'm doing something different, something weird because I get bored. I'm like, what's, you know, I'm here for three hours. Like, let me use like the other side of this pencil or let me use this like weird medium that has been sitting around in this bag for a while because I'm going to throw it out, but I might as well spend like three hours. The other thing, there's no stakes because it's like, you know, if, if I have three hours, three hours of drawing to, to someone who doesn't draw is a long, a lot of drawing. <laughs> Three hours. That's a long time. If you just you know, try meditating for three hours and you'll find out how long that is. But three hours for me drawing is nothing because I do that four times. You know, I used to do that eight times a week or something. Uh, six times, I think. Mm-hmm. Six times a week. Sometimes seven. So it's like I could literally throw one, throw three hours away and I still drew roughly the same amount, right? Just percentage wise. And so it allows me to be like, okay, I'm going to spend like one time I, I figure drew in a, with a Sharpie you know, and I didn't, I, I don't know. I did pretty shitty drawings, frankly. Like I wouldn't post them on Instagram or anything, but I learned something from that because I, you know, I was using a medium that basically has very little variety. Like a Sharpie has no real line thickness change. It's always dark. It's always the same value. Mm-hmm. And it roughly, you know, it doesn't have really an edge. So you're, you're basically like, the flow of, of the marks are, are roughly the same. So you have to find variety in your mark making or like where you put all the details or, or you know, how you sort of interpret certain uh, forms. The actual drawings themselves are crappy, but I was a better artist, you know? And it, if I do that every day, not only, like if I, if I draw five times as much as the next person over, I'm not getting better five times faster. I'm getting better 50 times faster because I'm, you're taking the five times base level just iteration, but then you're also adding all this experimentation, all this weird stuff, all this top of mind, you know, things going to my brain, the compound result of that, you know, that, uh, that, that the person next to me might not, might not be having. Yeah. And, and going back to, to boredom, boredom has such a negative connotation. Like if someone tells you that, they're bored. Most people would assume that you're, you know, maybe an unproductive person or you're someone who takes a lack of action. But, you know, speaking for myself, the reason I started the podcast, uh, Augzoro, the website that eventually morphed into the podcast was because I was playing college baseball a few years ago. And I was sitting on my ass after two elbow surgeries couldn't do anything, just popping pain pills on the couch, wasn't going to class, had a note that excused me for two to three weeks. So my friends were just bringing me work and I was bored as shit. I had, I wasn't able to go to any practices. I would kind of just stand there and meeting zonked out. And I was just basically waiting for my arm to stretch through the scar tissue to allow it to get to an angle where I could do exercises again. And I started reaching out to music artists. I have no idea why it was music artists. I, I've always loved music, but the thought just crossed my mind. You know, maybe I, if I emailed, cold emailed or cold called the information on a Facebook page, I could get in contact with some of my favorite music artists and then just talk to them and take notes on the phone conversations and then just post that online. And then I could just send that to the next person and be like, hey, here's my website. 
I talk to people and write about the conversation. Would you like to do that too? So that's how the whole thing started with music artists. And eventually I was following my own curiosity and got into other lanes like entrepreneurship, other creative lanes like fashion designers, things like that. But it all started out of boredom. It, it literally started with a conversation with one of my best friends on the couch, just sitting there and, and me just telling him how bored I was and saying, I think I'm just going to make a list of music artists and just call them and email them. And he just goes, all right, dude, like whatever. <laughs> and started doing that. Yeah, I think it's important. I think going back to what we were talking about before with like hobbies and all that, it's easy to just fill your time with like Netflix or like with just Twitter feeds and scrolling. I saw some tweet the other day that was like scrolling is the new smoking. It's just a <laughs> for many people, it's just a thing to do. And it suppresses, I think, that appetite, right? For like maybe a grander thing. And so, I was, yeah, I think it's important to sometimes give yourself the space to kind of just sit around and do nothing for, for a while. And, you know, if you just do nothing long enough, you might have some really interesting idea. But if you're constantly trying yeah. to satiate yourself, you're never going to give yourself that chance to be like, oh, I should move cities, you know? I was just playing mm -hmm. The Witcher 3 every day for, you know, like I would just, I would never have considered, I think, some of the possibilities that it's, it can be scary too, because boredom shows you that there's like a whole world out there. You're not laser focusing. Oh, yeah. You can go deep into some YouTube and Twitter rabbit holes, and all of a sudden it's 4 30 in the morning. You're just like, what the fuck was I watching the past five hours? But yeah, it's good to, it's a balance because you don't want to stay in that state for too long, you want to have that sort of internal switch that goes, okay, you know, it's time yeah. to get back to reality and, and take some action. But at the same time, you, you do want those breaks in your life that, that allow you to, you know, basically just shut off and let other things float into your head. And maybe, you know, a thousand things might float in and two of them end up becoming something that changes the trajectory of your life. Totally. And I think it's, yeah, it's important to have the opposite of that, where you're just heads down and you're not open to any other opportunity for a couple of years. That's great too. Right. And so I think it's a balance. As you said, it's like, it's like just like going to the gym. Like you don't want to be like, you don't want to attach like five pound weights to your, your palms and live your life. Yeah. People would probably call the cops, be like, who's this psycho in Starbucks? Exactly. With five pound weights on his <laughs> duct tape to his fucking hands. <laughs> but you know, like you want to lift and then you want to not lift for 46 hours. You know, you want to push yourself, you want to sprint and then you want to take a break. And so I think the same goes with anything. Like you want to do something and then you want to stop doing it and spend a significant amount of time just looking around and be like, oh, I wonder what I can do with my life. Just think. Because you can only do that so often. You can only change jobs so often. You can only move cities so often. You can only, you have, I don't know, five to between five and 50 different opportunities in your life to really change directions fundamentally. Is that a, is that a thing? Is that a proven? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, concept? But my guess is. I, it's, 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 I mean, it sounds right. I mean, you're living, you're living your life and, whether you know it or not, you're going to be hit with certain opportunities, whether, you know, 550. I would say it's probably on the lower 
end. I think people get less opportunities than they think that they will. And so it all depends on what your state of consciousness is at the time, how you're viewing things. You can be open or closed to an opportunity, you know, based on how you were feeling that day or, or what you were doing at the time. And so that's why I think it's, it's so important to, you know, have the mindset like it seems that you have to kind of cultivate that curiosity and, and have that openness about you. I, I, one of the other things that you said in, a, in one of the podcasts was that you, the one thing you do give yourself credit for is that you're open and transparent and the things that you're doing would not be possible without being open and transparent, especially going from one world to the other like that, from San Francisco to Utah. Yeah, it's an it's it's almost a necessity. And I always encourage everybody to be as open as they feel comfortable being and maybe a little bit more. Because you never know there, you know, there are there are all the opportunities that you can go find. Like, oh, there's a class in Provo. I'm gonna go do that. But there are a lot of other opportunities that I don't know about. And I'll get an email being like, hey, for example, I'm writing a piece for the New York Times right now, a sci-fi thing, which is pretty rare, a pretty rare opportunity, I think. Yeah, that's incredible. And the reason why as I mentioned in my Twitter bio that I write science fiction. And so she saw that. She read uh, one of my medium pieces and was like, hey, I saw you like writing science fiction. Like, and you're a good writer, at least on the, on the nonfiction stuff. Like, what do you, what do you want to write for the New York Times? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds cool. You know? And so I think it's, a, it's, it's also just, it, it saves me energy because it makes it easier for me to, you know, I can move to a place and someone will be like, oh man, tell me your whole life story. And I'm like, go read this. <laughs> and I'll do a better job than I can. You know, I don't, obviously I don't do that in person maybe, but you know, like it, it, it just makes it easier for, or if some, you know, a friend will be like, hey, you should, well, you should really meet Sahil. He just moved to Provo. Like go read this article that he wrote. You know, it just makes it so much easier. And then, I, and then when I meet someone, like they already have this like much more multidimensional complex understanding of who I am and what I do, why I do things. And so, like, I basically am like almost like best friends with everybody I meet in person. I'm not extroverted at all. I'm a mega introvert. But because there's so much context that very most people that meet me, like, they come with a lot of stuff, often questions. Like, it's like awesome to just walk in and be like, and they're like, hey, I have this burning question for you, which, you know, is, is you know, a lot of people can't get because they might be far more successful or smarter or whatever than me in every asset, but they're not nearly as open. So when I meet them, I'm like, how are you? Where do you live? You know, these sort of basic questions. And to me, that's fine. I just, I prefer like just getting straight to like the thick of it and discussing like the existential stuff. Like, you know, why do you like, yeah, why do you exactly, you know, your first question was about painting, right? Like how many startup founders get asked that question? Probably very few. Because and many of them might paint. Actually, I've met t- tons because I'm open about it. I've met quite quite a few people that uh, paint or enjoy paintings or want to paint, and I've been able to help them out a little bit. I think, but you know, it's because I'm I was the the open person, and I did it a few times. I've always been relatively open, and it's worked for me. And so it's a lot easier now to continue that trend. And I certainly understand if if, if people don't want to. I'm certainly not saying everyone should, but it has sort of paid quite a few dividends in my life. I would definitely consider myself more on the introverted side of the spectrum. I can get myself, like, for example, doing a podcast, I can get myself into the mindset of talking and being enthusiastic and, and 
kind of just spitting out the thoughts that are running through my brain because if you know if you're self-conscious about what you're saying you're that's not it's not a good recipe for a podcast you don't want to be over analyzing yourself but i think i've read that extroverts feed off of the engagement with people so if you talk to a lot of people like you'll almost want to go ahead and 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 talk to more i think after i talk to enough people or if it's over you know a 2 or 3 hour period i feel drained at the end like i just i'm just like i i need a i need a break from from people right yeah, now for sure yeah you mentioned the meaningful interactions with people and getting to that that deep part of the the conversation i i've talked about meditation a little bit on the podcast before but i've i started meditating about i think it's almost 2 years ago now and congratulations <laughs> thank you I'll, I'll get a like a ring or something for the <laughs> anniversary <laughs> but yeah so i'm not one of those people that preaches meditation as like this magic pill that's going to change your life overnight i i think it's much more of a subtle a subtle shift in how you approach interactions with people if you, and again it's all about consistency it goes back to like being in the gym i started out with 5 minutes go to 10 minutes 20 minutes in the morning but one thing that i have noticed is that i find myself caring more about the interactions that i have with people in the moment and putting more focus into those interactions like i've never mentally prepared myself really for interactions before i started meditating like if if i was going to meet with someone i kind of just you know rolled into a coffee shop and however i was feeling that's what they were going to get but now i'm much more conscious of being less reactive and kind of you know preparing myself like okay i'm i'm about to talk to this person even if it's something as simple as ordering a coffee and being like how can i make this interaction meaningful how can i like give this person the best version of myself even if it's only for 30 seconds but yeah that's it's something I've noticed. I, I'm definitely not like that all the time. Like I would say most of the time I'm not. I, I have to constantly get myself back into that mode because I'm, you know, we're on autopilot all the time. You know, you do it consciously and eventually you start doing it un, 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 not unconsciously, but subconsciously, right? There's like the levels of mastery, which is like, you, you know, you... uh you know, you're bad on accident and then you're bad on purpose and then you're, you're good on purpose and then you're good on accident or, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're bad without, you know, you're bad without thinking about it. You're bad thinking about it. You're good thinking about it. Then you're good not thinking about it. Right. It's this idea of training your subconscious to, to be who you really want to be because that's who you are. In my opinion, most of who you are is, is a subconscious thing and you can just kind of control, you know, you can kind of, incentivize and, and, you know, subsidize and some kind of like, uh, you know, it's like having a pet dragon or something like that. You can kind of, you know, kind of get it to do what you want, but only so much. And at the end of the day, it has a mind of its own. It's kind of weird to talk about. It doesn't like when I talk about it like this. Yeah. I, I really, I really do believe that. Like I, I've seen it in my own life where like I used to be, I think a pretty cynical person and a pretty, I'd like watch a movie, like that movie was terrible. That's one scene was so bad. And now everything I watch, maybe not as much, I definitely went through a phase of like hyper optimism. It's like everything I was, this is the best thing in the world. Like people in the company would, mm-hmm. would like joke. <laughs> Every time we'd see a movie like as a team or something, they'd be like, 
what do you think? <laughs> 10 out of 10 or 11 out of 10? Because <laughs> yeah, I just <laughs> trained myself, you know, consciously at first and then it became subconscious. I, I just genuinely liked things more. I trained myself to, to just do that. You know, now, how are you training yourself? You just focus on the good stuff consciously. You know, you just start like, okay, I hated that movie, but like, what was awesome about it? Spend 90% of your time thinking about what was really great about a movie. And every movie is full of amazing things. Every movie is a miracle, even the worst ones. Like, living in LA now and seeing, seeing a little bit of it, it's just like amazing. And so, you know, I think that, I think having just more appreciation for what goes into it, I think more understanding for just life and what it is, you know, like I think in general, like I, I don't know if this is a quote that I stole from somewhere. I like it. Just like love is basically just a fullness of understanding. If you understand something fully, I think you have to love it. I think in general, if you think about who you love in life, it's, it's typically the people that you understand the most. I haven't really put that through the test, so that might not hold, but for now I like it. And I think it's the same. Like the more you understand, like I guarantee you watch a making up video of anything, you'll like the thing more because you're just going to have appreciation for, for the, for what went into it and why it exists and the decisions that were made and, you understand more who worked on it and why they worked on it. And you're, you, you see the different versions that they didn't go with, that they tried and experimented and failed. And so, yeah, you can, you know, that, that's just like one specific example of sort of like, yeah, training myself. I'm like, I, I want to be this type of person. How do I do that? Well, I just force myself to, I, I literally just lie to myself. I just say, I thought that movie was bad, but I'm going to pretend that that movie was great. And the reason you know, and then I'm going to go find data that says this movie was really great. And then eventually you just switch to that type of person, you know? It's just like I think doing podcast interviews, I, I assume is similar. Like you, you start out being very self-conscious and, and, and training yourself not to interrupt or not to you know, say yes, uh-huh, uh-huh all the time. And then eventually, hopefully, it becomes subconscious. So you just start doing it instinctively. Painting is, is the exact same thing. Like you... you, you you know, one of the first things you learn is, is, is that brightness and darkness are by far the most important parts of any painting. And for example, you know, if you're, if you're colorblind, totally colorblind, if you could just see in grayscale, you can fully interact with the world, 100%. If you removed brightness, you, you couldn't do anything. If all you had was saturation <laughs> or hue, you couldn't move. You couldn't see, you couldn't make vertical from, it would just, your, your brain would explode completely metaphorically at least no one's trying this in practice i think but um it's kind of, you know and eventually you realize like, over time like you just start prioritizing those things automatically you know more and more and more and, and you certainly slip you're not perfect you're like you forget even the most amazing painters will make that mistake they're just better at correcting themselves so i was reading the goldfinch which was good enough to win a pulitzer prize and just became a movie and I didn't like the book at all. I gave up on reading it. That's an important thing too, is to know that you can't stop. You don't have to, you know, put yourself through something you don't like. And it was, I thought it was a terrible book, but the writing was brilliant. Like the sentences were so good. And like the, the first scene was amazing. Like the, the setup was awesome, but like, it was just not, I, to me, I was like this, I don't know, just wasn't my cup of tea. And, but I still learn a ton, ton of stuff from that. And so I think I've almost everything in life, like you can learn something from, you know, if, even if it's just like the fact that you don't like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the recent Dave Chappelle special. 
Yeah. Um, but you have people that are almost going in, in the opposite direction where something that has been by consensus, a great piece of comedy, a great piece of art by the audience, the, the critical review of the, the special has been panned. I think it's 38% of, uh, official critics have said that they approve the Dave Chappelle special and 99% last time I checked of the audience score approved of the Dave Chappelle special. So it's like you have the, you're, you're battling the, the optimism and the negativity from, from both ends because people can almost decide going into it, this is going to be good and this is going to be terrible. I was actually thinking about tweeting something along these lines. It's like if, if, if someone has decided if they're going to like something before they see it, like a movie, or if they're going to hate something before they see it, like beware, basically. Like that's not possible. There's so like uh, a, a good example. I actually think the Chappelle stuff is, is really interesting. I, I'm down to talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, I, yeah, of course. You're skeptical about a lot of the stuff people have been talking about. But I saw this with the Joker where I don't know how it came up in my feed, but there are all these where I found all these people saying like, wow, this movie's terrible. And then they won some award. And then people are like, oh, wow. It's like even more obvious that it's going to be terrible. And I'm like, I don't know why people are saying it's terrible already. I assume it's something related to something mm-hmm. cool. Like it seems to always be at this point. But you're not evaluating the thing. You're just not. You're participating in social commentary. You're part of a, a group, an in-group or an out-group. You're signaling to other people in this environment like who you are and what you care about. It's an identity thing. It's not, you know, if I, if I said, you're going you're gonna to win $100,000 if you can predict how good this movie is going to be everybody was, is going to change their mind. The people that said it was going to be 10 out of 10 are going to say, actually, it's like a 6.9. And all the people yeah. out of 10 are going to be like, yeah, actually, I thought it was going to be like a 6. It's probably a 6.2 because they still have these biases they can't get rid of totally. But I guarantee you, like all the, all the critics that say that Chappelle's show is like terrible and never, no one should watch it, they don't believe that. They're lying because they're getting paid to create outrage. Because they know that that's, uh, I mean, Chappelle knew what he was doing too. He knew that this is exactly how people would react. Yeah, it's, it's tight in the title, Sticks and Stones. He knew that the most that he can do with his words is that people are going to get pissed off at him, which based on the topics that he chose to address, you're going to have at least some backlash in that case. And I, I was reading some of the, the critical, the critic reviews earlier today for the first time. And I did get that feeling where I wondered if you just told yourself this was going to be a shitty comedy special or an out of touch comedy special. That was a a phrase that a lot of critics use that he's out of touch or he, you know, he doesn't understand or he's, you know, defending people that are already in power and he's punching down. I saw it as the opposite where he's He's making fun of taboo issues like abortion and, and transgenderism and, and school shootings to go back at essentially the leftist structure where, you know, you're not allowed to have conversations. He's punching up at that whole 
structuralized form of oppressing conversations. Like it, it's such a, uh, you can get outcasted in that group by speaking to a certain person or talking about a certain topic without them even knowing what your viewpoint on the topic is. And so it seemed like, I don't, I don't know what his actual process was, but I wouldn't be surprised if he sat down, thought of you know four or five things that are hot button issues on either side, and then just try to write funny jokes about it. Not necessarily take sides. He has moments in the special where he leads into the joke, making you think that you know he might be pro-life or pro-choice. And then he completely goes flips back to the other side side and he's like, hey, 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 like don't don't assume what I am or, you know, how I view things. I'm just trying to, you know, point out the the hypocrisy and the the comedy in how people handle these issues. Yeah, totally. I I think he's he's a smart guy. He's been doing this for longer than I've been alive, you know, and so he knows exactly what he's doing and so do these news outlets. And really the only people getting played are, are uh, the people that get their time wasted, maybe including us talking about it. <laughs> I, you know, my personal opinion of the special, I think Dave Chappelle is a phenomenal comedian. I was like, this is okay. I'd say, uh, you know, of all the stuff I've seen, he's, I think his last two specials that he did on Netflix were a lot better. So I, I do worry that he's playing, he's too aware of what he's doing. Because I think it he's like he wants a reaction, hence the name and everything. Like I think it's almost yeah. like that way. Where I'm like, nah, like I, I, because I, I kind of like when I don't know when my my comedians kind of, but it, you know, we live in a in a and you know maybe this is a, also what he's commenting on, but in general, we 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 do live in this environment where you can't be apolitical, where you can't just talk about abortion without people saying you must be pro-life or you must be pro-choice mm-hmm. or even saying that I don't care is a political statement or, you know, like for me, it's like I, on most issues, I just, I'm like, uh, uh, you know, there's a, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, you know, to try, I don't know what, what led to this, but someone said like, you know, like Trump's Trump wants to nuke hurricanes. Isn't he an idiot? And I'm like, my guess is there's a bit of telephone going on. My guess is he probably didn't say that, but maybe he did. Uh, I think he's an idiot. But why is nuking hurricanes a bad idea? No one can tell me why nuking hurricanes is a bad idea. I'm not saying it's a good idea, by the way. I'm just saying. There was, a, there was actually a clip of, uh, I forget which news outlet it was, but I, I, there was a guy that was trying to think through the plot of nuking a hurricane and... Or no, it was, it was the opposite. Sorry, it was uh, dumping massive amounts of ice into the tropics to try to disconnect the hurricane system from the the warm water that it feeds off of. And like everyone was <laughs> giving this guy shit and saying, you know, you're a dumb hick from the south. Like, what do you know? But no one was offering a different solution. And yeah, that's crazy to have you know the navy come in and dump millions of tons of ice into water to prevent a hurricane but at the very base of a hurricane that the fuel is the the warm water so in theory something like that at an extremely massive level which we probably couldn't provide could work like it wasn't that dumb of an idea in theory yeah the pro- the problem is that it's it goes back to that whole signaling thing where by questioning like by saying even something like like I would never say it publicly on Twitter, like why is nuking hurricanes a bad idea? 
Because what people say, are going to see is this person is, a, is secretly a Trump supporter and he's annoyed that we're calling, saying that Trump is stupid or something like that, you know? Maybe not exactly that, but there's like that, especially like, you know, who I am, like it's even, even, yeah, I get it all the time where people are like, oh, did Provo like make you conservative? I'm like, no, I'm st- I'm still like an in- incredibly liberal person. I'm a very, uh, at least politically liberal individual in terms of like, if I, if, if, if sort of like, if I had to vote on something in general, people that identify as liberal are going to be more pleased with, with what I do than, than, than I assume most conservative people. But all I'm saying is like, I just don't know, like I'm open-minded and just because I'm not signaling every chance I get that I'm like, I'm a hardcore lefty, which I probably am in my dealings with the world. I grew up in Singapore, which is like a super left place, in my opinion. And, you know, I've met libertarians that say, oh, Singapore is a super libertarian place. And I'm like, cool. Clearly, we're both projecting. (laughs) The truth is more complex because inevitably reducing something to a single word, it's probably, there's probably some loss of information there. But, you know, that's like with anything with, you know, like this new Bill Burr special that just came out, like there are all these articles and I'm like, not, I don't, I don't, people ask me all the time, like, what, what do you read or, or whatever. I'm like, I literally don't read anything. I haven't read a news article in years because it doesn't influence the way that I do my business. Like it doesn't matter. And I don't really believe that these people are trying to genuinely inform me on the topic. I'd much rather, I read a lot of Wikipedia. Uh, if I'm interested in climate change, I'll go read a Wikipedia or 15 different Wikipedia things about very specific phenomena. Like the hurricane thing, I go read about this, how hurricanes are started or whatever, you know, first principle stuff. I would go buy a book written in the 40s, you know, that, that, you know, has stellar reviews. That's about like this hurricane guy who like goes and flies through, has flown through 15 different hurricanes. And like, why? Because that guy's dead. He doesn't give a shit about what's happening in the world today. And that's what you need, <laughs> in my opinion. If there was ever time not to read news, it would be right now because there's a very blurry line between journalism and activism that many people are crossing into as activists and pretending to be journalists. And, and you're getting the opinion of one person, but they're portraying it like it is the thoughts of the masses and that you know millions of people agree with me kind of going back to well it's just like the Chappelle thing right like people say oh like there's like all this outrage like i have a bunch of conservative friends now uh living in provo and and government creators and stuff and like, like oh man like look at all this like all these liberals like don't you think it's weird as a liberal that like all your people are like annoyed at this thing and i'm like literally i have met zero liberal people that think that like i talk to hundreds of liberal people every week and probably like five conservative people or something you know I'm like, literally nobody I've, I've met in real life. And these are incredibly, some of them are like, you know, like socialists or whatever, you know, many of them are non-binary trans LGBTQ to some in that, in that community. I have literally zero people that have said anything about like anything negative. Most people are like, yeah, it's hilarious. Or like, I haven't seen it yet. I can't wait to check it out. I, I, I think it's, it's almost all of this stuff is like, just like the black aerial stuff. Like there are all these supposed people that are like upset that Ariel is black. And like, I've never heard a single person express that point of view. See, like, I, I don't get what would piss people off about that. It's 
you know, you're, you're free to create whatever you want. And if you didn't agree with it, you just don't have to see the movie for whatever reason that can be. You always have the option to turn things off. You, you can have your own reasons for it. You can straight up say, you know, Ariel's white and I don't think she should ever be a different color. That's how she was created. Or you might think, well, it's fine that she's black, but the directors are just virtue signaling and making us making want to make people think that they care more about race than they actually do. Or maybe you think, you know, they're just creatives that are doing their jobs and this is the depiction that they came up with. This is the vision that they saw and they're fulfilling that. It's a business, right? Like that's that's what I like. I'm like, look, if you're liberal, you might love the fact that Disney made this decision. If Supposedly, if you're conservative, you supposedly don't like the decision. But the truth of the matter is, it's a business decision. They didn't do it because they thought it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. They, in my, in my viewpoint, it's mostly a business decision and they felt like it was a good business decision for them to do. And I'm not saying it's, it's bad that they did that, but like things like, Oh, like we can actually, you know, recruit new diverse people that can tell really good stories. If we do this now with this story that we have, like there are not just for box office returns as, as, as a business, but like holistically, I think at the end of the day, like people are mostly self-interested and that's just always been the case. And, you know, if, if, if you're a writer, I see this all the time when I watch uh, like basketball, like I watch the NBA finals or whatever every year. And in like the halftime show, it's pretty obvious that like these people don't care at all about what they're saying. Like they're just, there, th- this person is playing a, a role. Like he's the person that loves the Warriors. This is the person that hates the Warriors. This is the person that thinks Durant is a traitor. You know, like that's just what it is. It's just a, you are. I mean, they they are probably literally given scripts. It's a show. You're watching a show. I think that's a very important distinction. Like, there's a difference between news, which can take the form of a book or a Wikipedia article or data. All, all news can be reduced into data. Entertainment is entertainment. It cannot be reduced into data. You cannot consume... You can, you can consume the Warriors game as data, for sure, like the scoreline, for example. But watching four dudes talk about if it, it was this play or this thing a bad idea or not, or like, you know, that's all made up crap because they want people... It's like whenever you watch a game and it's like the Warriors are up like 6-0, Every commentator is like, oh man, like all it needs is a two possession play. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, except it's, you know, it's like the Warriors are up 3-0 in the series. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's like six seconds left on the clock. But, you know, people need, they get paid to get people to continue to watch because that's what advertisers pay for. Ad- advertising rates are based on ratings. And so you have to make it so that people watch. And people aren't going to typically watch a game that's a done deal. Right. And so you just have, I think it's a lot of it is just understanding, I feel like, incentives. And when you realize, you know, like I, I mean, I have friends that write for these publications. They're like, oh, hey, this, uh, this Dave Chappelle thing, Dave Chappelle's releasing a, I'm, this is hypothetical, but I could, I would bet my life. Uh, hey, this Dave Chappelle thing is coming out on Slack. This is probably happening. Um, who wants to write about it? And, you know, basically people, writers will pitch their ideas. Like, oh, like I'm, 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 uh, this like I can I can tell this story and use this example and like 
I think, you know, it would be great to talk about, like, I heard that there was this clip that, by the way, Netflix, like, how did everyone know that this special contained this content before the special came out? Because... Was that happening? Did people post about the content before it came out? I mean, everyone, yeah, everyone knew that, like, the, that he was talking about this whole, you know, the, the alphabet people. Um, I think that bit was... Posted. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't aware that the first time I heard the alphabet bit was... In the special, which which I'm glad of. I, I, I don't really like having context before yeah, movies. I, I, wish, I wish that was the case for me as well, man. Because it would be nice to watch it without people telling me what I should think. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's kind of hard these days for that to happen. Yeah, that's interesting how it how it leaked. I don't know. Like, it, it doesn't seem like it would be in Netflix's favor. Well, I don't think it leaked. I don't think it's a leak. It's like Netflix, It's promotional material. It's like, hey. Like how can we get true, it true, yeah. about this show the day like it comes the trailer? Out? Yeah, it's like what do we put in the trailer? It's the same thing. Netflix does this. I mean, Netflix like I'm, I guarantee you pre gifts everything they release. Uh, the day the day that the, the glow season comes out, like I guarantee you know all the every interesting moment is pre gift pre subtitled and put on all the different services. So that when you know people, it's just like I don't know for for some reason I I think people like underestimate like the importance of business in a lot of these decisions like people are oh that's crazy that's conspiracy i'm like no that's just like if you ran a business when you do that you pay an intern like 10 bucks an hour to go through everything and just slice it up and turn it into gifts like that makes total sense to me why would you not do that why would you not write an article that a hundred thousand people because you use this heading instead of this heading like it's just business (laughs) It seems like a lot of people assign moral values to things that are business decisions and are, you know, you're trying to, like you were saying, pay employees, you're trying to keep operations going. A lot of conservatives have problems with publications like Vox and BuzzFeed. But if you understand how they're functioning, they're, they're trying to clickbait you. They make money off of advertising. It's going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, like you don't understand their goals. And so when you give them feedback, like, oh, why don't you do this? Why, don't, why are you more middle of the road? It's like, well, you just have a fundamental misunderstanding of their goals and what they want. They don't want what you want. And that's okay because people want different things. And you should go focus and hang out with the people that you align with. And, and you should probably just spend less time and attention like worrying about this other stuff. Because it's mostly a waste of time, I think, to try to change anybody else's mind. People are going to change their own mind when they're ready. And you can help them. You can be a nice person. You should do all these things. But I think I'm, I would be very surprised if any, you know, if someone said to my face, like, hey, you're really stupid about this thing. Change your mind on it, please. Otherwise, I'm going to tweet about how dumb you are. Like dunking on Twitter is a great example. Like, it's just, you know, it's just no one, everyone just does that because it works. Dunking is like the most effective way to grow an audience on the internet. That's what all these people, I mean, that's basically what anyone writes these days is doing it in a sense almost right it's like just dunking on the enemy the quote-unquote the enemy or someone's ignorance like oh dave Chappelle's out of touch no he knows exactly what he's doing and and by the way the person writing that does too <laughs> and i mean the person writing the article isn't even the person writing the headline anyways yeah he's the he's a writer for a publication that has a certain agenda that goes along with the the financial aspects of of running a business they have a viewership base that it, you know, they know which way they lean one way or the other. And so like, they don't have, they don't have to tell the guy he's not stupid. They don't have to say, you know, 
write this about Dave Chappelle's special, he gets the idea of what they're looking for. Yeah, totally. It's like you didn't you didn't need to assassinate Jeffrey Epstein. You just needed enough people to turn the other way and it was going to happen. Guess what? Like none of those people had to change their minds. You don't have to tell anybody to do anything. You just had to align the, the people that already agreed on everything in the written in the right in the right pattern for the thing that the result that you wanted to actually happen. Right? It's the same. It's the same thing. You you hire the person that's going to write those things anyways because they they benefit because they're in this social group and that's you know this the sort of the status symbol that they that they that they share is like how how liberal or how conservative. I mean, can I even like I was reading something on the Federalist the other day and I was like this person. I'm mean, like this person is like. Uh, a straight white Christian dude who just is writing an article about how like straight white Christian dudes are, are, uh, I don't know, oppressed or whatever. And it's like, look, that's his audience. I guarantee you. I mean, I assume 95% of his audience is that, you know, he's writing first and that's, he's being paid to do that. And that's what he does. And like, that's just what it is like that. And the beauty of, of agency is that you can choose to, to avoid it or at least choose to, not react like, oh, go on Twitter and be like, look at this moron. You know, like every time there's a, a Brett, what's that guy's name? Brett Stevens or something? That sound, sounds familiar. He's a New York Times columnist and he always gets, mm-hmm. he always shares these, in my opinion, kind of stupid takes often. Some of them are fine, I'm sure, but the ones that I see often, you know, obviously the ones that I see are the stupid ones, right? Because that's the only reason people would share those things with me. I know he's doing this shit on purpose. Every time like these things go viral and go trending on Twitter, I'm like, yeah, cool. Like seven million people read his op-ed instead of the fifteen thousand people that read it the last week mm-hmm. it was boring. And it's a lot easier to be interesting and, and stupid than like than boring and smart. I, I want to respect your time. I kind of lost track. We've been going for <laughs> thirty minutes longer than I said it would be. I think a good place to end off would be if you would want to talk for a couple minutes about the tweet from Gumroad. It was, I'm quoting, we can commit to doing this for five aspiring creators and entrepreneurs. If you can't, let's go. And that was in response to Andrew Yang's announcement in a debate last night that he was going to give 10000 or sorry, $1,000 a month to 10 people. And I, th- I think it's very cool that you guys are giving back to creators. I know I've heard you speak about giving back to creators in the past. What was the decision-making process behind that, yeah. that announcement, that decision? I Honestly, it's funny because I haven't even seen the debate <laughs> yet. I watched an hour of it and then I went to bed. I, I will watch it at some point but, uh, or listen to it. But there's a... Yeah, he, I think he said something. I mean, he's, you know, his position is pretty well known, right? Like he wants to do that freedom dividend, $10,000 for... Yeah, he's the UBI guy. Yeah, the UBI guy, um, which, you know, I'm genuinely skeptical about UBI in general, but I like experimentation. It's like that whole boredom thing. Like, I feel like it's pretty boring right now politically. Like we haven't really... Like I can't remember mm-hmm. the last time anyone really suggested anything that interesting. Like the most interesting... You know, I feel like Obama, you know, it's like DACA was cool. Obamacare, like that's new cool stuff. Like I don't know, really, I don't know. I've I've, I've been pretty disappointed by Trump. Obviously, I'm a liberal person, so like not not a surprise. But even just in like trying stuff, I wish he just like did more weird weird things. With that, I was just like, oh, this is a cool, interesting idea. Like UBI, there's two things that I, I think would really help creators, which is sort of our audience with Gumroad, as we help creators monetize. And one of them is uh, healthcare. I think getting uh, rid of employee uh, or employer-based healthcare 
would be great for that because then you can start a company, you can leave your job, you can do whatever you want, and you're always going to have healthcare. You can become a full-time artist, all these great things. And so I'm a big advocate of making it so that you're employed, like you're, you're basically your, your job doesn't determine your healthcare. Um, I'm, I, I'm flexible on how that's implemented, like Medicare for all or public option or whatever, whatever. I don't even know what the different ideas are on the table or any conservative idea too. Like as long as like people feel like they can quit their job without losing and then getting a car accident the next day and going bankrupt like that, I'd be great. Cool. Sounds great. So that there's that one. And so I'd love for Gummer to sort of publicly support whatever, whatever plans appear. And then there's UBI, which is like basically, yeah, you, you sort of apolitically, sort of without any means testing, you just give it basically everybody in the country like some amount of money, which is a form of wealth redistribution, which as a liberal person, like, I'm a big fan of wealth redistribution. And it's cheap because you don't have to do any means testing. You don't have to do any administration. You just, you know, I'm sure there's some, but you're roughly giving everybody. I actually think $1,000 a month is way too much. Like I would start with something much lower. But I think that's besides the point. I think what, it's just interesting and new and like more people should experiment. And so when I saw him tweet about that, I was like, this is totally in line with our mission. Like we're a profitable company that has already committed to donating money publicly to a variety of causes. So this is like, it's easy. And and there was an article, I think New York Times said basically like, this might not be legal, like to take campaign contributions and like redirect them in this format is not allowed. Yeah, it's kind of of crazy when he announced that everyone was like, can he do that? Like, is he allowed to just (laughs) say... By the way, like it goes back to exactly what we're saying, which it doesn't matter because the fact that yeah. that it it doesn't make sense and might be illegal is what makes it interesting, sort of by definition almost. And people are scared to attack him on stage. He never gets attacked yeah. by anyone because I think well, you know he don't know how because it's like you've never seen that before. It's like attacking a rattlesnake. Yeah, the few moments that he does get extended periods to talk, he you know he's he seems like a, a very intelligent guy. I've heard him come on some other podcast, which is cool. I think more of those candidates should do that if if they want to up their positioning with the the average voter. Go on Joe Rogan or or Ben Shapiro or mm-hmm. you know Dave Rubin. Like if you want to get your ideas out there. I, um, I, so I, it's cool. I agree. I also really disagree with that too. Because if you're like there's nothing to gain if you're in my opinion, if you're Biden from like going on Dave Rubin or Ben Shapiro. Not at least not at this stage of the election. It's more beneficial for him to because I, he's pulling at such lower numbers. I also think right. it would hurt Biden too because he seems very tired and exhausted up there already at a debate, speaking for seventeen minutes uh, over the course of three hours. I think that a pod, like a two-hour, three-hour podcast, might open up the are the the stigmas that people have about him already, which is that he's old. But uh, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'd love to see Trump like on Joe Rogan for three hours. That'd be awesome. That would be amazing. Do you see the petition that was signed by 100,000 people? I think it's more at this point to have Joe Rogan and a staff of his choosing moderate a debate. Oh, interesting. So it passed 100,000 signatures, which I think means that the White House has to give a... They have to at least respond to it. And so they want Joe Rogan to moderate... What does the White House have anything to do with the DNC process for picking a candidate? I actually don't know. I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, it was a petition that was connected to the White House. And I think that based on the 
the platform, there has to be an official response from Senate or Congress, something like that. So they have to say like, yes or no. Oh, yeah, the platform. So, the, so that platform is, a, is Obama. Like Obama built that platform. And then, it, it, you know, it's a White House thing, but, it, you know, he was the guy who sort of made that happen. And then I actually, I think I remember like when Trump first won, everyone was like, oh, cool. Like now Trump has to respond to anything with 100,000 votes or whatever. And so they just sent all these things to him. Uh, and then he never did. I think they just deleted them. So my guess is it doesn't actually matter at all. Yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think it's it's actually going to come to fruition. But it would yeah, be. That's interesting. It would be cool. It would be cool to think about to you know to have someone like Joe Rogan who, you know, arguably is more skilled than some of the people that are sitting at the panel to have long term conversations because you know, a lot of those people are used to having talking points and a script in front of them and going back and forth for, you know, 30 to 90 seconds on a newscast, which is its own skill set, uh, regardless. But in terms of a, a long-term yeah. debate... Yeah, well, they're not debates. There's no, That's the thing, right? It's yeah, like they're... Yeah, they're not. Debates. They're not debates. But I actually... I I personally think if that, that like... Like, I think the, the format that I would prefer is, like, you get... Uh, uh, expert in like seven different fields, like education expert, this like a conservative and a liberal expert, like someone who's notable on on the left and someone who's notable on the right, and then you you just get them to to sort of facilitate a debate between you know uh, X and Y or whatever. I don't think you could do it with more than two people, to be honest. And then I really think like that thing would be amazing. It would be on the front page of every newspaper or whatever. And then literally no American would actually give a crap. You don't think so if something like that happened? I really don't. I don't. I, I, I think 99.9% of people like are going to vote the way that they're going to vote already. Like you could do the election today and, and roughly know what the, what the, what the result's going to be. I, I think Trump won the election. Like the day it was Hillary versus Trump, like Trump won. Like I think the debates, the emails, Benghazi, the Russia, like all that stuff, like obviously like it came close. So, you know, like, Maybe like it would have swung one just because how close it was, but I think most most at the end of the day, like is is yeah. I don't I don't I don't really believe that people change their minds too frequently. So I think I think even these debates are like mostly just a way to get advertising revenue. Like I don't actually think they matter at all. Yeah, see, and you're right. It's not it's not a debate. There's no way in which you could consider it a debate, and it provides a platform for advertising dollars and for people to get across ideas without actually answering questions because you know that in 45 seconds or 90 seconds, whatever it is now, that they're going to have to move on to the next person. So you can be asked... I think it's hilarious when people are asked a yes or no question and then they somehow go on for 90 seconds without addressing the actual problem. Mm-hmm. and or, or not even a problem, just like will something as simple as will you raise taxes with so-and-so policy? And then it always starts with a statement like, you know, just, let's be clear or let's think about this. And then they just go off on a tangent. It's like they create their own tangents and, and no one actually answers question, which is why I love podcasts. I actually think like it's great that they don't answer the questions because like it's stupid to ask Elizabeth Warren a yes, no question. Like, why would you do that when you can go to her website and read the answer? Like you already know, everyone knows what the answer is. Everyone knows just by nature of not saying yes or no, you already know the answer. Yeah. True. It's like uh, 
you, you could go to her website to find it out. People know that she like people aren't stupid. They know she's deflecting. You can listen. Yeah. Yeah, you just know. I mean, obviously, like, yeah, taxes are going to go up. Like, everybody knows that. It's just, yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same thing that I've, I've learned to do it too. Even like, like, even in podcast interviews, like someone will give me a question and I'll just answer some different question that I wish they had asked instead. <laughs> Feel free to do that if you haven't already. <laughs> well, yeah, now I don't really do it consciously anymore, but some people have told me like, but you know, you just, you, you also kind of know, and this is what, Warren's doing too is like they, she knows what the audience wants to hear and she's just going to mm-hmm. give it to them. I mean, Kamala, I think, is probably the best person on that stage in terms of doing that. Yeah, no one, no one is really there to have a conversation and that's fine. I just try to tune it out because besides, I, I, I basically I'm like, this is entertainment. If it's entertaining to me, fine. If it's not, then no, I won't watch it because that's, you know, you, I'm being played by the people. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of just, but yeah, anyways, like I, I do have to run, but like in terms of the Andrew Yang thing, like I don't even support Andrew Yang. Like I haven't done nearly enough research to make a decision on that, but I just saw, I was like, oh, this is interesting and cool and fits in line with Gumroad. Like, why not? And if like, if Bernie did something or Warren did something or Biden did something or, or Trump did something, maybe not Trump. I don't know. I don't know if I'd touch that with a, with a poll at this point, <laughs> but many other people, people I'd assume on the, on the, on the right, like Mitt Romney or whoever, like maybe even Ted Cruz, like said, well, let's, I want to do blank or whatever. Uh, I'd be like, yeah, cool. Like we have enough money. Like we can, we can help make that happen. Like it's also benefit, you know, like for example, like if I, if, if, if I can eat a DM from Andrew Yang's Twitter account or something, that's like, Hey, this sounds really cool. Let's set this up. Like that just, you know, it's like that whole serendipity thing. Like it just, I don't know what's going to happen, but like, you never know what you don't know. Right. And so it's just like, that's part of it too, for me, is just like, be open to opportunity. It's, it's like the push pull thing again. Right. It's like, I'm signaling to the world that I am interested in doing weird stuff and I'm not afraid of like maybe some of the political wonkiness backlash, maybe that might happen. And I understand that this is a game that we're all playing. Andrew Yang's playing the game. Gumroad's playing the game. New York times is playing the game. And so I think my hope is that people see that and they're like, oh, cool. Yeah. If I'm, if I want to, if we want to play the game on a different level, like let's all get into a room when no one can hear us and talk about how we can do it together. That's some of the kind of this, I think, I mean, but really, I mean, that, that thinking happened in like four seconds. I saw that and it was like, cool, retweet type of thing, send. As is the platform of, of Twitter. Built for that. If you want to train your subconscious, you have to rely on it. You have to rely on your instinct. If you're constantly like, being super clinical and strategic about everything. Like you're not giving yourself a chance to do the weird stuff. That's going to, that's going to be interesting to people. Yeah. It all goes back to, to being open and putting that you're a sci-fi writer in your bio so that someone reaches out or tweeting about Andrew Yang, just putting that out into the universe seems to have a reciprocating effect. And yeah, thank you. I, I know you have to run. Thank you for your time. I, I really do appreciate it. I think this was a fun conversation. I I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Sahil Lavingia. Whether you are creating something for a living or as a side project, I highly recommend checking out Gumroad. Gumroad is for artists and creators, writers, designers, software developers, musicians, educators, filmmakers, and anyone in between. Go to gumroad.com or visit the link in the description of this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to support 
this show. We are grateful for every single one of you who listens to even just one podcast. Those of you who have been with us since the beginning, maybe you found us a couple months ago. Doesn't matter. Thank you for tuning in with us today, wherever you're listening to this on the train, walking down the sidewalk, sitting on your bed, wherever. Your, your presence with us matters greatly. It's it's why we do what we do. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to make a connection with the listeners because everything you see on a stream is just numbers. You see how many people listen to a podcast episode. You see, you know, how long people listen to it. You see how, what the average is, fluctuations, things like that. You're tracking statistics, you're tracking numbers, and it gets hard to visualize the actual people that are listening, which I try to make an effort to do. So for the human beings that are tuning in for you right now, thank you so much for taking the time to support Augsoro and listen to Augsoro. And we will continue to give 110 fucking percent to bring you the best conversations that we can. I'll see you guys next time.